I'm Phil Brooker, lecturer in sociology at the University of Liverpool, and this is the fourth episode in a, a mini-series of podcasts where I'm reporting on a work-in-progress research project on um, NASA's Skylab 3 mission. So it's been a while since the last update, because this is kind of like a, a grand return from um, my paternity leave. So baby Jacob's here, he's now six weeks old, uh, doing really well. Um but unfortunately now I'm back to work and I'm kind of back to digging through Skylab transcripts, which is obviously massively kind of interesting for me, but going back to work has definitely been a bit of a wrench for sure. Uh, okay, well, either way, I've been back at work a couple of weeks now and I've found time to kind of keep plugging away at this Skylab stuff. So just a sort of um, a brief reminder of where I'm up to with that. So um, in the previous episode, I went through the conversation transcripts covering uh, the normal uh, kind of days of work and the 26th and 27th 1973 uh, so rather the the, the 26th constituted um a day off for the astronauts and the 27th was their normal day at work um and the idea of kind of doing those two together was to kind of give me a sense on what sort of things go on on days off and days at work on this mission but also these these days they're kind of noteworthy in as much as it's on these days that pre-existing tensions between the crew and mission control start boiling to a head um, so the period I'm looking at in total is the 26th to the 30th of December 1973 and on the 26th and 27th we start to see the crew dealing with and raising issues around their workload um, and the ways in which tasks are passed up to them from Houston which kind of serve to make their working days more hectic and stressful than the crew think they have to be. So the last episode then I gave this kind of blow by blow account of what happens on the 26th and 27th December 1973 between the crew and ground teams involved in the Skylab 3 mission. Uh, and it that, that that kind of narrative included moments where these tensions and difficulties were coming to a head. So one of the big issues I noted was the astronauts kind of appearing to kind of get tetchy, you know, for sure. Um, but whereas other studies and other kind of literature suggested that, that it's this kind of us and them thing between the crew and ground teams... Uh, the transcripts and when you know on, on my analysis of them suggest that the the astronauts are actually getting touchy with each other. Um, so, for instance, when the commander of the crew, Jerry Carr, seems to have a go at one of his other crew men, kind of uh, calling them a big dummy um, for unnecessarily eating into his time on the tape recorder during this particularly delicately balanced job that requires intricately organised uh, comms. And and as well, kind of remembering Nash's prudish kind of uh, transcription conventions, you big dummy likely equates to something much stronger. So there is this. This is a kind of significant moment here. The commander's kind of caught on tape, flying off the handle, uh, which is not a good look. Um, the outcome later is that the commander and the crew seem to mutually agree that it'd be useful to explain why these tensions have come out in the way they have uh, by having the commander send a tape recorded message down to Dick Truly and Phil Schaefer on the ground team where they kind of raise the issues of the workloads and the scheduling that they're struggling to deal with uh, and request a response from the ground as to, to what the deal is and, and what might be done to better support the crew and kind of replace these morale sapping practices with more sustainable ones given that the, you know at this point they're only about halfway through the mission. So this episode today then is going to look at the fallout of, of the commander's outburst, uh, which is the final straw of other tensions across the whole crew that are kind of equally evident in the transcripts. Uh, and also the, the outcome of the commander's sub subsequent message down to ground that, that turns these issues into something requiring a public response from mission control. Uh, which is public in the sense that uh, it's been delivered via a tape which has to be transcribed and it's therefore made available to journalists and the public more generally, which obligates mission control to kind of respond in a timely fashion. 
So to that effect, what I'm talking about today is a similar blow-by-blow account of what happens on the 28th December 1973 uh, between Skylab 3 and their mission control team. And and this is kind of a sort of a tense day itself where we where we start by waiting for a reply from mission control to this, this kind of extraordinary turn of events where the crew, they're still trying to get on with the normal day's work of a schedule that they've got no real hope of keeping up with. Um, but they know that this message has been sent down mission control don't yet know what happens when they find out that's kind of the uh, what we're looking at today so we, with all that in mind here's the fourth episode of skylab 3 living and working in space a kind of um running theme throughout the day then is is the crew reporting in various ways on how harried they are and this starts right out on the first air to ground call as, as mission control wake up the crew so the jobs for today, um, they're mainly looking at this this comet called Kahootek as part of the ATM, uh, which is the Apollo Telescope Mount Experimental Package. Um, they'll also be doing some medical tests on the commander, the CDR, and they're prepping for their EVA, extravehicular activity, you know, the, the spacewalk. Um, so this EVA, um, CDR and SPT, the science pilot, they're going to be doing uh, a spacewalk the following day and preparatory work has got to be done um, for that so one of the first things that cdr says when he's asked how he's doing by the capsule communicator cc who's on the ground team uh, so cdr says as soon as we get our marbles gathered up we'll let you know um and i'll maybe come back to this a bit more as we go i probably will but effectively it seems to be kind of um, a sort of imposed narrative structure on the day that the crew are reporting on how their workload impacts them um, and about feeling pressured about having to manage all the activities they're being told to do uh, and that seems to kind of reinforce CDR's message from the day before. Uh, and it is worth bearing in mind, uh, the tape that CDR sent on, on the night of the 27th, it hasn't yet been heard by anybody, since the data is only even sent down to ground the morning of the 28th. Um, and it's only transcribed later, it's only kind of made available to mission control at the point it's transcribed, and, and, and they can talk about it and prepare their message back. So these iterations of harriedness at this point in the day are maybe kind of helping to set up the ground to, to hear those ideas, to kind of cushion the blow or something like that. Um, all right, so yeah, well, another example of this kind of uh, vocalisation of harriedness. Um, so when the crew were up and working, the CDR reports on some experiments he's running. And, and, he's, and, and in this, these reports, he's saying things like, I've got too many things going on at once here. Uh, and, and that's a verbatim quote. Here's another verbatim quote. It's a typical case of over-scheduling over and under-timing or something. Um, so I guess the point I'm making is that the work that they're being told to do is the same, but CDR and the crew... Um, the other crew seem to be making extra effort to elaborate on just how hectic it is. Um, they're reporting these difficulties by kind of getting them down on tape rather than just keeping them in their heads and struggling with them or in off-the-record conversations that aren't transcribed, that kind of thing. Um, and, of course, the crew, they're reporting on their having done successful experiments here. So it's not that they can't do the work. They're just demonstrating in words, as the medium at hand, uh, the practical difficulties that they have to encounter as their routine practice. So thinking ethnomethodologically, what they're doing in these kind of statements, they're making those difficulties available and accountable here, um, whereas before they've gone unspoken. Uh, and and if something goes unspoken when you're relying on voice only communication pretty much exclusively, then it's not recognizable or visible to all parties. Um, so here we have the crew trying to make those previously invisible things visible, noting the, these kind of troubles by um, displaying them in action, even if they're not explicitly verbalizing them. You know, if it if it kind of comes across indirect, they're still kind of more visible than they once were. 
Um, so I guess you know th- this this is a running theme throughout the whole day, and I don't know if the kind of if the crew have sort of um, engineered this or, and and decided to kind of collaborate in producing this, um, you know th- these displays of harriedness and hecticness, um, that's not kind of given in the transcript, so I won't I won't make any claims like that, um. But this kind of making troubles available is something that the crew do through the whole day in various ways. Um, and I think it's kind of an interesting departure from the sort of the, the put up and shut up approach they've, they've adopted so far. Um, OK, so another interesting thing happens about five hours after their wake up call. You know, in the meantime, they've got on with the work. They're, they're reporting on the hurriedness of it and then they're kind of getting stuff done. In in an, in a normal way, so the crew are in the midst of their jobs for the day, and at this point, about five hours after the wake up call, they get a call on 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 the public channels. That's the PAO and the ATG air to ground channels, um, from CC, and and it's kind of noted at the outset that this is an ATM conference call. So this conference is not requested by the crew, um, but given the ATM as a telescope equipment for looking at the sun and other objects like like this comet Kahootek. Um, it's nominally relevant to their ATM work today um, and to the EVA tomorrow, since since looking at Kahootek is, is what the EVA is primarily for. Um, but the conference call that follows is not just about ATM or EVA work, really. Um, the caller, um, I, I'll kind of elaborate on this as I go. So the caller uh, who's on the line, who's giving this conference, it's not just the usual CC, it's somebody else. It's one of NASA's other scientist astronauts called uh, Bill Len- Lenoir. Um, he's got he's got a role um, as um, the backup SBT for Skylab three. So he's 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 kind of um, a trained up astronaut, but one with a decidedly academic, scientific, and and as far as I can remember, he's also got a kind of non military background too. And and he would be the person if SBT kind of fell ill before the before Skylab three launched, he would take his place. So he's kind of you know, uh, well the backup crew I think explains it all. Um, so. He's on the line as a kind of substitute CC um, with the news that the crew now have what he calls a hunting license for their ATM work. Um, So previously, the crew's ATM work has been this really kind of tightly scheduled um, effort. And they've they've been kind of supposed to just follow instructions off a page like, you know, um, flick that switch, take this picture, expose it for 30 minutes, move the telescope to these coordinates, that kind of thing. But the hunting license is introduced at this point as a new organisational tool that gives the crew far more autonomy over their ATM work. So this is a massive step. It means it means the whole approach to scheduling is being rethought from the ground up. The whole idea of how the astronauts are supposed to do their work is being rethought from the ground up. Um, so effectively, what hunting license means here is that unless there are explicit instructions not to interrupt individual tasks like the core tasks of the ship... Uh, the crew can use the ATM to do whatever they think is the most scientifically valuable thing to do at that point. Um, so as Bill, Bill Lenoir tells them, um, this is a quote again, any time, in your opinion, there's something more interesting than the sun to look at, whatever it is, be it a better target for what we had selected, an emerging flux region, a prominence, a bright point or whatever, go ahead and do it. Um, the only request that the, the ground have for the crew is that they kind of give a full report on what they're doing. So, um, and, and this is, this, that's not a kind of um, an added task, really. It, it is just so that they can understand the significance of the things that depart from the schedules that the crew might want to look at. So if you're not going to follow the schedule, at least tell us kind of what you are looking at so we can keep a kind of a track on what's happening. Um, 
Bill Lenoir, at this point, he also gives a bit of detail as to why the rigid scheduling has been in place to this point uh, and why it's perhaps been a constant annoyance to the crew on the ship. So uh, so he explains that the ground can only ant- anticipate and schedule for, for tasks at the time of planning, and usually that's 24 to 36 hours before sending the plans up to the crew. So this means that almost inevitably there's going to be missed opportunities and more interesting things to do when it comes time to enact those plans. So say, for instance, if something like a solar flare starts to happen, um, which the crew might want to look at, uh, but it's not accounted for in the schedule because a solar flare is a kind of random, unpredictable event. Um, so the point is, um, uh, Bill Lenoir is saying here, here's, you know, he's saying here's the reasons why we've been rigid so far, but clearly it's not working. So let's try another approach that's more kind of responsive to your needs. And it recognizes your expertises in selecting good scientific targets. Um, and the effect is um, that now Mission Control and the crew, they're all on the same page in regard to the notion that overscheduling and rigidity has this sort of deleterious effect on the science being done. And um, moreover, the decision has fallen on the side of the crew. So Mission Control are now doing things the way that the crew suggested they do them in the first place. So there is a few significant things to note here, and, and I'm going to kind of tackle them in not, not particularly any order. Um, but the first thing I've got is this conference call was kind of flagged as having a very specific remit. Uh, it was kind of flagged as being a daily ATM conference, you know, in a way that suggests there's nothing to see here. This is a routine thing that we do before ATM work. Um, but there is something really big Um that's gone on that's that's downplayed in the PAO transcript as a routine daily practice um which means that the public and journalistic focus on on the significance of the hunting license might be lost here um Second thing I wanted to know, this conference kind of comes at a time when we know the tape has already been downloaded to ground and it's had sufficient time that it it might then have been transcribed and heard by Mission Control. That's me kind of speculating, but it's also kind of grounded in the stuff that um, the information I have, the literature I have on how the, how the, uh, the mission operated. It was generally about a kind of... Um, the best part of a working day before a tape was transcribed and made available. And five hours kind of seems to fit that, that model. Um... So we know that, that, that then that this tape may have been heard at this point and, and kind of this, this may be a response to that tape. So the hunting license kind of, it does seem to be a sort of a fairly direct response to the issues that were raised in the commander's tape of the night of the 27th in all but words. Um, because it's evidently about the same issues that CDR was raising on behalf of the crew. Uh, it's the same categories of issues that are being dealt with, but there is nothing explicitly verbalised that says this is a response to those issues. Um, which I think is kind of interesting in itself. All right, so the third thing I wanted to say about the hunting license, well, it's kind of, it was nominally limited to ATM activity only. This is suggested as a kind of a thing that you do for your ATM work. But in the wider context of CDR's tape of the 27th and the activities that the tape is about, um, any talk of planning and scheduling has a wider sort of relevance here. Um, it, it kind of um, we might see it as part of a bigger conversation, even if those relevances are um, unspoken. Um, and fourth, finally, even though Bill Lenoir is an astronaut, he is part of the kind of the grouping of people called Mission Control here. He, he you know, he, and his talk kind of, however much emphasis you want to place on this, he does say like things like we and our decision in response as a way of kind of aligning himself with Mission Control here. Um, but more generally, that is just how the roles work in NASA. The, whoever's on the Capcom kind of role, even if they're sort of a, a, sing, a, a person kind of like singled out, like Bill Lenoir, who's not normally Capcom, um, 
it is a kind of uh, they 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 speak on behalf of mission control. Um, so this is a message. Um, Bill and Noir kind of flagging these issues up and saying, here's your hunting license, here's a new way of organising work that we think you'll appreciate. And this is a message that is designed to kind of puncture this us and them mutually exclusive categorisation between the crew and ground. Um, and it does seem to be this kind of message of, of, of solidarity and unity uh, and, and getting on the same page in regard to um, getting good scientific work done. All right, so... About an hour after this, we've also got some nice conversation between the crew and the ground on the public PAO ATG channels, where CC is asking the crew for their input and expertise on various things to do with scheduling tasks for the EVA the following day. So CC asks PLT for his insights, PLT being the pilot of, of the ship, for his insights on the sun shading procedures that they followed in the last EVA to see if any changes could be made. And this is done... Uh, PLT's expertise is asked for because he did so well, verbatim quote, last time. Um, and at this point, SPT and CDR also chime in their thoughts on this too. So they kind of, um, this is a really nice bit where everybody's kind of like having the opportunity to talk about their expertises, their their experiences of, well, we're on the ship, we know what's, what's happening, we can advise kind of thing. Um, and here, CC also says they're kind of happy to go with the crew's request to use a particular camera, the Nikon 2, um, which is a handheld camera that you take out with you on your on your EVA to take pictures of, of the sun, not through a window, you know, so you're not getting the glare of the window or anything like that. Um, and, and originally they were kind of down to take uh, another type of camera, but the crew had already previously reported that they don't like that camera. It doesn't work as well as they'd hoped. It's difficult to use in, you know, in, in a spacesuit, that kind of thing. Um, and CC says, this changes because you know the camera's better than we do and you think the Nikon O2 is a better camera. So, so again, we've got this kind of recognition of expertise and uh, you know, um, autonomy as well. So there's a few more of these kind of what do you think can we get your thoughts from this point onward um, and they do seem very carefully placed and very kind of explicitly worded you know these these are not just kind of um, referred to in passing but effort is made to say things like we're making these changes because you the experts who perform EVAs and perform experiments you know more than us um, and I don't think this is just flattery I think there's kind of more to it than that it's about the mission control team um, showing and making available on the radio that they have a response to the crew's issues um, they've got something that can be recognised as a response to those issues um, and this is before the kind of preparation of, of a formal statement that explicitly refers to the um, the issues and, and kind of outlines a response to them this is the kind of the showing before the telling almost um, and it, it, of course it doesn't mean that the crew's activities themselves get any easier but just the kind of uh, that the approach to dealing with them can be more directed by what the crew needs rather than what the schedule demands. Um, so, for instance, in the next pass uh, after this, CC needs to pass up some changes to a list of tasks for CDR, presumably because there's been a mistake or conflict. So, in effect, the list of instructions CDR has to follow has got to be changed. And, and that does create kind of organisational administrative upsets for CDR. It means that some work he has to repeat. It means that... Um, he has to kind of reorganise his schedule on the fly. It's hard work to deal with. Um, but these are kind of... As CC passes up these changes to CDR, they're now not expressed as a matter of kind of just do it, as they have been previously, like, we need you to do this and we will assume that you're going to just do it now. 
Um, these are now expressed in a different way as a matter of preference for CDR. So CC says, and don't let me interrupt your ATM run here. Go ahead and turn me off when you need to. Um, so not only is it now expressed as a matter of preference, it's kind of... Um, well, CC's kind of being explicitly aware and making his awareness known that CDR, at the point of being requested to do something different, is currently involved in a highly demanding task. So if now is not a good time to, to kind of take those changes to instructions, or if those instructions are not agreed with, CDR has the room to kind of kick back against them where he didn't before. Okay, so this is the kind of the tone of the day now. It may be starting out a bit tense with the crew trying to make it very verbally clear that there, that there are these scheduling issues that upset their capacity to deliver good science. But once the CDR's tape has been hearable by ground, those issues seem to be being responded to indirectly. And I guess what I mean by indirectly there is um, everything happens through words here in as much as the crew in the ground are speaking over radio only, but there are no words to the effect of, we've heard your tape and here are our thoughts on it yet. Those do come later, um, but for now, maybe while the ground is kind of formulating their sort of inevitably public statement and response, they're at least showing the crew that they've understood the issues and are trying to make some positive changes. And I think these are positive changes for what that's worth. Okay, so another development. On, on a public PAO ATG channel pass, SPT has got some info for the flight planners that just kind of comes out the blue, really. Um, unprovoked, he kind of says he's going to try cutting back his exercise time to one hour from 90 minutes. Uh, and he's going to do that for the next 10 days to see how it feels. There's no justification given as to why SPT has made these choices. He's not saying it's going to produce better science or better medical data or anything like that. Um so it does kind of seem to come out the blue um, in that way, but it does contextually sit alongside the stuff reported on in the CDR's tape about there being feelings uh, from the ground that they're concerned about the crew taking too much exercise uh, or leisure time. So I, I guess maybe what I'm trying to say is that this kind of comes off as a concession from SPT, given that earlier politicisation of exercise time, something like that. And this does come at an interesting time as well, in as much as mission control, they've already, at this point, made a lot of concessions themselves. Um, I don't want to get too speculative here. Or I, I guess at least maybe I want to say that I am being a bit speculative. Um, but this comes off as a kind of show of goodwill from SPT, you know, that the astronauts, they're not just hard-faced about this. They're willing to meet mission control halfway too. Uh and this is maybe their show of kind of reciprocal solidarity to kind of help show that the astronauts know what's going on. We understand the things you've been kind of indirectly trying to tell us uh, and we appreciate the efforts you're going to here. We're going to make some efforts back. Um, all right. So at this point as well, I think, you know, timing wise, there is a, a, a change of shift in mission control at this point. So SPT's talk about the exercise stuff that is actually directed to the to the Purple Gang, who have just come on shift. They're the capsule communicator and the flight uh, directors um, for the night shift, effectively. And that includes Dick Trulia and Phil Schaefer, which are the two people who were explicitly listed as recipients of the tape that CDR recorded of the night of the uh, 27th. So whereas before it might not have been the place of the CC to kind of speak directly to those issues raised in the tape, in as much as the tape's not for them, um, now we have the people on the line who the tape was for, uh, which creates a kind of bit of dramatic tension. You know, are they going to say anything about the tape? They must have heard it. It was for them. It's on them to respond to us now. Um, 
so SPT, he's, he's kind of sent his con- concession down to, to, to Dick Truly and Phil Schaefer, knowing it's them who can hear it live. Um, and on the next pass after that, they get the first direct response about the tape from Dick Truly, who is now CC. So here's what CC says. I wanted to say this to you when on our first pass here this evening, uh, but things have been kind of hectic around here, even for this place on a detail shift. Late last evening, just as Phil and I were leaving, we did get that tape that you put on queued up and we listened to it. We are working on it. You asked some good direct questions and we're going to give some good direct answers. Some of them possibly later this evening, I'm not sure. CC goes on to say that the general summary of that discussion that they're having will be delivered via Uplink so you can have something to kind of soak in, is how he terms it. So Uplink here means the teleprinted device. It's kind of like a fax machine, I guess. You know, so somebody on the ground will write something and it gets transmitted as written, uh, you know, kind of textual paper data up to the, the station. And normally it's used to kind of uh, transmit instructions about jobs and so on, like a list of things to do. Uh, it can also be used for things like this. Summaries of discussions. Um, so importantly, kind of anything sent in writing through the teleprinter is not captured on the voice transcripts because it's never spoken out loud, um, unless it's spoken about publicly. You know, so uh, but but in, we wouldn't normally expect that to happen. Things that have been written down are, are written and not spoken for a reason. Um, so that being said, though, uh, CC does kind of factor this in, given the kind of journals and the public who might be sensitive to these issues as as they are expressed on the public channel. And he kind of says as well, and probably later on tomorrow night or more likely the next evening, we can sit down and talk about it for a while. So he's not kind of ruling out the, the, the idea of talking about these issues, but he is kind of saying that there is something written coming up. Um, perhaps that's something that we wouldn't necessarily want to talk about, or at least we want to think before we talk about it. Um, so I think there are a few points to make here. I think this is a really kind of significant for the ongoing issues in a lot of ways. Um, also, well, I should say as well, CDR kind of acknowledges this um, with a kind of fairly perfunctory, okay, that'd be great, Dick, thanks a lot. And the fact that it's not a kind of an in-depth discussion on, okay, well, tell us what you think about the tape. It kind of, it lets that conversation be cut short, uh, which is kind of useful too. All right, so there's a, there are a few points I kind of want to make about this this message uh that's the first direct response to the tape. The whole statement that CC makes um, is thoroughly indexical. There's there's kind of no reference to specifics whatsoever at this point. And it's almost kind of like, if you look at it on the page, it's almost visibly hedged talk as it appears in the transcripts. Um, and the choice to uplink is kind of a hedge too, as I've, I've kind of alluded to. It tells the crew that these these are there are things that are not necessarily yet for the public. Um, so be careful how we're talking. Let's think about how we formulate responses to each other. You know, give you some time to soak it in, um, and you know we can we can talk about it later when you've had a chance to do that. Um, all right. So the second thing I wanted to make there is this kind of obligation to respond directly at this point. Uh, in as much as it's now known that Dick Truly and Phil Schaefer are in the booth and the CDR tape of the 27th was for them. So it is very important that CC tackle the tape head on and give details of, of how and when the crew can expect a response, even if that's done with reference to indexicals, which it is at this point. Um, third, it's no doubt kind of comforting for the crew to hear that they're not in trouble, really. Um, so I think what CC was doing here is not just kind of placeholding that later conversation, you know, kind of topically and sequentially. But the, the purpose of this message is to kind of diffuse tensions as well that might be had around the expectation of a, of a future conversation. 
you know what what is that conversation going to be about um and and uh, dick truly as cc says you know you you gave us some good words we have some good words back um and i i, I kind of take that as like you know we 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 under, we you gave us a clear statement on, on on what you wanted what you needed and we now understand the issues and we can kind of give you a clear statement back so it's a full and frank discussion which is exactly what the crew requested in that take um okay so fourth thing um given the change in tone and the reference to the tape at this point kind of thinking forward it'd now be very odd contextually for the crew to then after this withhold their radio communications in protest so for the crew things are somewhere between on the up and under review uh spt's made this big concession in his exercise time which seems to put the idea of uh to bed that of, of, of kind of going on strike um which was, uh, you know, by refusing to listen or speak over the radio unless things go south, you know, go way south later on. So, so the the idea of going on strike by withholding radio was something that was uh, talked about in other literatures as being quite a kind of a crude way of, uh, you know, the, the strike in space. Uh, well, I've talked about that in previous episodes. Um, and I don't think that that would be kind of a contextually relevant thing to do at this from this point going forward, given what's taken place. Um which is not to say the crew don't or haven't already weaponized their radio comms. I kind of talk about that in the last episode in more detail, but um I think I think what they have done is 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 kind of used the radio comms to to elicit these conversations where they wouldn't normally happen. Um which is, you know, an interesting kind of organizational conversational thing to do. Um but I do want to say that the literature that more kind of crudely represents the goings on on the ship as being a downing of tools, a strike in space, is increasingly seeming to be a bit kind of fictionalised, to say the least. Um, there's more nuance to it. There's more sophistication uh, that we can pay attention to. And we can still learn a lot about kind of labour and organisation from, from these materials. But uh, it's not the kind of um, full on strike in space as it was expressed in some of the documents I've looked at. Okay, so kind of moving on from that then, the only other significant thing that kind of happens this day is something kind of small, but also something really sort of massive in, 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 in some respects. This seems to have also been throughout the day, but coming mostly at the end, you know, after, after this point of um, Phil Sh- uh, Dick Truly talking about the tape. Um, various communications issues being handled in a, in a kind of much different way. So, for instance, the the CDR's uh, big dummy outburst, if we remember back, it was because of the practical difficulties of managing the tape recorder around other communications happening between ground and crew simultaneously. Um, so CDR kind of gets frustrated because there's a, bit, there's a kind of like a praxeological juggling act um, that in itself is massively complicated uh, of managing this tape recorder whilst also doing your work, whilst also looking at who else has got the tape recorder and who might be taking the, the, the access rights to it away from me. Um, so in itself, kind of managing those communications is, is really massively complicated. When you couple it with the kind of technically demanding scientific work, it's pretty much impossible. It's very frustrating. Uh, and, and that's what resulted in the outburst, as I see it. So now, um, those communications issues don't just dissolve today um, because, you know, nothing has really been done to, to change them. Um, those issues still happen. And you've still got the technical limitations of when ground want to use the tape recorder, they can just take it away regardless of ha- of who is currently using it and that is frustrating that is difficult to deal with um 
but the difference now is that CC and the crew are better at signposting what they're doing and how long it will take so that the other party can plan their comms activities around it. Um, so a kind of an, an instance of this then. So I want to pass towards the end of the day. CC opens the talk. He opens the pass by saying, hello, we, you know, we, we've got acquisition of signal over wherever uh, for 10 minutes. We're going to take the control of the VTR here to start our dump cycle, which means they're grabbing the TV data effectively. So a statement like that would give one of the crew the opportunity to say, oh, hold on, we're using it right now, can it wait? Um, or even just kind of silently log the info like for the remainder of the pass um, to say, okay, well, you know, the, the dump cycle is going to begin now. Um, maybe I just don't use the TV kind of to record anything for the next 10 minutes because I know that I'm going to get it taken away from me. Um so in effect, there's no more of these kind of snatched moments of uh, at the tape recorder. There's no more of being booted off the tape recorder unexpectedly because there are these clearer communications that announce the potential for troubles much earlier um, so that they can be kind of anticipated and dealt with. Okay, so I want to start wrapping up what happened in Skylab 3 on the 28th December 1973 by reflecting on a few of these kind of central themes of the day as I see them in the transcripts. So... Um, first, explicit expressions of harriedness seemed to kind of characterise the morning in, in the crew's talk. They knew this tape had been sent down, so it's almost like making explicit references to how unnecessarily busy the schedule made them uh, as a way to kind of preface or, or bolster the messages in the CDR tape from the night before. So it's almost as if to say, if you think this tape has come out of the blue and, it, and you find it a bit shocking, well, here's some evidence uh, that backs up what we're saying. That's what they're doing by explicitly kind of vocalising their harriedness. Um, and I do also think it's really interesting that until this point the crew haven't made these kind of explicit references as frequently or in as detailed a way um, so prior to the tape being recorded and sent down to ground the crew's approach was just to kind of silently absorb all these scheduling issues um, by working harder but it seems that at this point they've kind of reached a limit on how hard they can work and how much of an effect that working harder can have um, so they tried to force a change by making the issue one of public record. That's kind of what I mean by weaponizing the rep the radio by kind of making it public. That's the tool in their box that they deploy to to kind of change things. Um. So being clear on on kind of what the limitations is that they've reached and why they're now insurmountable by just goodwill and working hard. That's kind of crucial in terms of dealing with things in a more sustainable way. Um, so making harriedness an explicitly accountable and available thing in the conversation is a massively key move here. All right, so the second kind of reflection I have, um, I kind of like that even before the tape's explicitly referred to, the ways in which talk is organised carves out spaces for things to be said that express unity and solidarity uh, and mission control kind of coming down on the side of the crew. So I think there is a, a, a recognition here that the, um, the best results are to be had when both the crew and mission control are pushing in the same direction. Um, if you accept that the crew are committed to delivering the best science that they could, then you have to take seriously their concerns around issues they report as, as kind of being obstacles to that. And if that's your goal too as mission control, then you have to support the crew as best you can rather than just keep throwing extra stuff at them and keep plugging away with a schedule that is clearly causing such tension. Um, and that's what seems to be happening here. But it is also worth reiterating that the issue has been forced by the crew since they elected to make the issue a matter of public record by having it put down on a publicly available transcript. Um, the literature suggests that the mission control and the flight planners just didn't see the issues until the crew had told them, which, you know, I, I, 
the transcripts don't really tell me much about that. But either way, it seems like nothing would have changed had the crew not took this decisive step of um, sending a tape down to ground in a way that it's going to be publicly uh, publicly available. Um, I think there were there were other options they could have taken. You know, the crew could have sent down a more innocuous request, like, "Can we have a private con? We've got an issue we'd like to speak about, and just leave it there." Um, but having the issues laid out pretty frankly publicly mandates that public response back to them um so this is kind of also partly an issue of labor power i think and the use of labor power to kind of um express issues and and, and kind of resolve conflicts um I mean, kind of conceptually, the crew are in a position. They don't have to take instruction from ground. They're, they're like 200 miles away or something. Um, they're up in space. Nobody can force them to do this stuff. They can do whatever they want. Um, and the ground, they don't have to meet the astronauts halfway. They can always just kind of keep providing these rigid instructions and say, well, that's how it is. We, we're in control. You've signed the contracts. Uh, that's your job. Stop with the moaning, that kind of thing. But it is in everyone's interest now to resolve those issues, to help each other get good work done. Um, and the fact that it's also public means that now they have to also refer to the higher goals of the mission as being about getting important scientific work done uh, as a way to unify both the crews and ground sets of concerns. Um, so now talk is more carefully constructed to provide spaces where these things might be said. You know, things like you're the experts here. Or, this is why we've done something that might raise an eyebrow, but we're open to your thoughts on it. Um, those kind of statements, they're conspicuously new on the 28th, in light of the tape. Uh, and even if that talk is not prefaced with a direct or, or kind of explicit reference to the tape, you can kind of recognise it as being about the same sorts of issues. I'm also really interested in the idea that the crew and ground have recognised and worked out a system of more open communications as an organisational tool without kind of setting out that that's what they're going to do conceptually in advance. Um, so all of this kind of talking about and genuinely kind of mutually seeking to understand each other's practical issues, it appears to have massive immediate benefits here, especially since both parties seem to recognise that that is what's being done. Um, if you have the contextual awareness of the scene, I, I think you can maybe kind of pretty unambiguously say things like SPT's exercise reduction announcement is a concession. That's what we would call it. Um, and that CC Dick Truly's acknowledgement of having heard the tape is a diffuser. Um, that kind of thing and in this way if you can kind of recognize them as such things like announcements become more heavily flagged up as, as organizational tools so for instance where cc announces that the ground will be taking control over the recording equipment that gives the crew vital information as to managing their immediate activities around it and this is information that wasn't readily provided before but it, evidently it matters a lot um, and again, I'm, I'm kind of interested here, not so much in the fact that I can recognise these things as an, as an analyst, though it is kind of a practically useful thing that um, that such a recognising can be uh, achieved by somebody who's not a member of the Skylab 3 mission. Um, and if I can do it, then uh, if it's, it's something that's kind of legitimately describable as being information that's at least partly for public consumption. So these things are made public. I think that's interesting. But what I'm also trying to figure out is... is um, this idea that uh, that these were tools for organising conversational work that are worked out in the very local context of Skylab 3 um, and all of its kind of component parts to that point. So the particular ways of communicating that solve the problems specified by the crew, they only make sense in the context in which they are designed to intervene. 
Um, so the focus for me shouldn't be on the particles of conversation themselves, like things like announcements in abstract as a kind of an abstract concept, um, but on the purposes to which those particles are put in the local contexts in which they are sensible moves to make. Uh, and if I want to kind of understand the talk that happened on Skylab 3 and how it all fits together as a piece, that's the approach I'm going to have to continue to take, I think. Okay, so, um, well, that's that for now, I think. And, and obviously, thinking forward to the next episode, it's going to make sense for me to do a similar blow-by-blow -blow account of the activities of the following day on Skylab 3, which would be the 29th December 1973. Um, and I guess as a teaser, I'll, I'll kind of say up front, that day is kind of remarkable for two reasons. So firstly, two of the crew go and do their extravehicular activity. You know, uh, so, we, so we get a sense of the work involved in a spacewalk, which is pretty cool, I think. Um, but secondly, um, after the crew are all back inside, they get a direct response to CDR's tape of the 27th and they begin the process of talking through their, their issues directly with mission control rather than the, this kind of um, coded but recognisable way that they've been doing so far. So I guess tune in next time to see if the shit hits the fan or not. Um, other than that, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy what I'm doing so far. Um, please do get in touch with thoughts, comments and suggestions on what I'm doing as I'm doing it. Um, if you want to tweet me, I'm at PD Brooker. Um, that's probably the best way to have a public conversation that obligates a response from me, a la Skylab 3 itself. Um, the theme music and stings used in this podcast series are from Something Elated and Caught in the Beats by Broke for Free, both distributed under a Creative Commons license. Thanks very much. Catch you in the next one. <laughs>